Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Bay Area Theater Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky with interviews conducted over the years and during the pandemic with playwrights, directors, actors, and producers. This podcast was originally posted on December 11, 2016. The Christmas and New Year's presentation for Berkeley Rep during the winter of 2016 to 2017 was Knee-High Theater's production of 946, The Amazing Story of Adolphus Tips, which was adapted and co-directed by Emma Rice, who at the time had just left her position as artistic director of Shakespeare's Globe Theater in London. Currently, in November 2020, she is artistic director of the theater company Wise Children in Bristol, England, and during the pandemic, Wise Children has gone digital. The next production, in association with Nehi and Bristol Old Vic, is The Flying Lovers of Vitebsk, which will be streamed live December 3rd through 5th from England with a starting time of 11.30 a.m. Pacific. I've created a link on the webpage for this podcast if you want more information. My guest is Emma Rice, who is the director and co-adapter of 946, The Amazing Story of Adolphus Tips, which is running at Berkeley Rep's Rhoda Theater through January 15th, 2017. Emma Rice is currently the artistic director at Shakespeare's Globe Theater in London, formerly the artistic director at Nehi Theater. How many years were you there? That's always a tricky question. I joined as an actor in 94, started directing in 99, and became artistic director in 05. You're still doing some work with them. Adolfo Tips is a Nehi production? Absolutely. I mean, I made Adolfo's Tips while I was still with Nehi, but, you know, well, you can take the girl out of knee-high, but you can't take knee-high out of the girl. So I'll always be associated with the company. Before we get into this show and a little of your history, I want to talk about knee-high because I think this is the fourth knee-high show here at Berkeley Rep. You guys did Brief Encounter, Tristan and Isolt, The Wild Bride, and now this. What separates knee-high and when you came into knee-high, what is it about knee-high that makes it a little bit different? It's always a tricky question to answer that, but in many ways it's the facts about Nehi that are different. It's a Cornish theatre company, and for those of you who don't know Britain, it's right down in the far southwest tip, um, Cornwall, so it's very wild, it's very isolated. Um, you can get to New York quicker from London than you can get to Cornwall on the train, and it's very, very beautiful. We make our work in a set of barns on the Cornish cliffs. There's no cell phone reception. There's nowhere to buy a coffee. And these facts mean that we spend a lot of time with each other. We eat food together. We cook together. We tend to party a lot. And whilst we don't live together, for the period of time that we make a show, there's a great sense of investment and fun and peace and real intimacy in the way that we really get to know each other, what we're good at. And certainly as a director, it's often in the tea break that you see somebody doing something funny or around a fire in the evening that you realise that they've got a beautiful singing voice. 
So I think there's something about the isolation of where we make work that is quite exceptional. And then on another level, we do everything. We have a great tradition of making music, even if we're not great musicians, of puppetry. We, we're very sort of greedy to make theatre. We're not precious at all. So you get a very unusual form. And I don't care as a director. As long as the story is being told, I don't care whether it's words or film or puppetry or whatever's exciting the room at that time. So it's very multidisciplined and always good fun. We're quite simple at our heart. So there's good old-fashioned storytelling in there somewhere. What I noticed about all of these shows that we've seen here, there's a lot of theatrical artifice, but kind of not a reliance on tech. Our reliance is on each other, is that we, we're very committed to the human experience of making theatre. So we always get into the theatre early, we warm up together, we sing together. We always think that if all the electricity were to be turned off, you'd still be able to do the show and make people cry and make people laugh. So that's really a fundamental of what we do. That sort of carries over to when you came to the Globe, too, because they are low-tech, relatively low-tech, too. Yes, I mean, in a different way, but I think that was where they felt like there was a naturally good fit there because the globe is open to the sky. Nehi's always worked outside, so there was a complicity there of, of the background. So, yeah, it seemed like a good... And I like making epic work, and Shakespeare's plays are big epic stories, so a good fit. What was the first play that you worked on as director and co-creator at Nehi? It's largely forgotten, which is probably a good thing, but it was called The Itch, and it was a new adaptation of The Changeling, I think by John Fletcher, a Jacobean, and I adapted it, stripped it out. There was only five people in the cast, I think, and I directed it, adapted it, and starred in it. I have to laugh because I'd, I'd been a sort of struggling actor all my life. So when I started directing, I cast myself in all the best roles to start with, which I quickly realised was a bad idea, but that was in the early years. Nehi is not merely Cornish because currently there are two shows in England and a couple of shows here making the rounds. What turned Nehi into an international company in that sense? because the work is distinctive and I think there's very few companies with a very genuine ensemble and a genuine house style and I think certainly internationally I think that's really appreciated so you get a very distinct flavour with Nehi and that becomes something people want. Do you remember how that started? You know Nehi's been going since 1980 and our international relationships have changed over the years. In the 90s we had a strong relationship with the British Council who've changed policy but at that time they were very much matchmaking companies and we travelled to China and Syria and Lebanon, all sorts of places now which breaks our hearts to see what's happening over there when we'd, we visited and got to know the people there, Hungary. And we also did some European touring as well. But that's very much changed now, and we're in a different world, as we all know. The world's changed, so it's a slightly more commercial landscape that we live in. And we've developed very strong relationships with theatres in America, Berkeley being the absolute key and beloved one, St Anne's Warehouse in New York, and also now the Wallace in LA. So we have very good, strong friendships. Also Australia, New Zealand. So the word gets around, but certainly as you travel, more international producers see the work and get to know you. So it's a natural build. 946, The Amazing Story of Adolfo Tips, is based on a children's story about a very tragic event that happened in 1944. In an interview with The Guardian, you talked a little about the origins. Your mum 
put you on to the story? She did. Yeah, I, I always listen to my mum. It's a simple thing in life. I don't have children of my own, so I don't have much reason to be reading children's books. But I do have nieces, and my mum had been reading this particular book to my nieces and just said, Emma, you have to read it. It's got everything that you would want in it. And she was absolutely right. Not on the surface, because it was actually a very hard book to adapt, because a lot of it was in diary form, which has got to be the worst theatrical convention. Somebody looking over a book and writing. But the events, it's got a very important political heart. And then so much, it's got animals, it's got humour, it's got romance, and it's got a great sense of hope. So it really did feel like the perfect show. But it's also about a very serious subject. Uh, in that interview, you said, isn't it interesting how the way we whitewash history? When reading up on this show, which is a children's book, it's about the death of nearly a thousand American GIs prior to D-Day, many of whom were African-American. When you were given the book, did you think that was fiction? Did you know anything about that? I knew nothing about this. And in fact, it has been actively um, suppressed as a story. And understandably, at that point in the war, the one thing you the, the government did not want was a terrible bad news story because we were very, very close to invasion and very, very close to uh, a very different future. So it was decided that this awful, terrible incident would be suppressed. But what's interesting is it was suppressed until very, I can't remember the exact date, but it's probably in the 90s that it was it came to light. And only when they found the, the tanks in the, in the water off Slapton Sands. This writer, Michael Morpurgis, he's the one who wrote this book. Do you know how he found out about it? I do. Michael is a is a fabulous man, but he he's based in Devon on a farm, and in fact he'd gone to a funeral in this village of Slapton and was in the pub, and saw all the photos on the wall of the villagers leave evacuating the village, which is what happened, and he started to ask the locals about the story, and that was how he became interested. And we visited the village. It's a fascinating time, you know. It was it was taken over in the war for the American GIs to practice their manoeuvres before this terrible tragedy and to this day they can't the trees are very misshapen and you and they can't prune them down because they're so full of shrapnel they did so much training in that part of the world that is it a secret to talk about what exact in terms of the story can we talk about the tragedy or should we wait for people to see the show I'd rather let them see the show. I mean, I think it's it's worth everybody knowing that this is a fact. The, 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 the story is based on something incredibly real and incredibly moving and feels really fabulous to bring the show here to America. And it's a small way of not only acknowledging those people, but also saying thank you. You know, that his, history could have been very different for us. Well, let's go back to the creation. So you read the story, you decided you had a meeting with Michael, and he said, is there anything you want to do? You said, I want to do this. Okay, so you've got these diaries, you've got this story about a cat and a girl looking for a cat set against the backdrop of these maneuvers. Where do you go from here? How do you adapt this? There's no formula to how I make work, but I tend to think what's interesting what I always think you should always know what the end is in a piece of theatre. And ideally, you should know the beginning. And if you've got those two things, the middle will gradually work itself out. And the end of this story is just brilliant. It makes me smile even thinking about it. So I knew how I wanted it to end. And because it's a quite a surprise ending in the book, 
as a theatre maker, you you might you want to seed a surprise much earlier than you would in a in a novel. So that was really what I thought: is how can I seed? How can I really delight the audience with knowing that there's going to be a big surprise at the end? Why do you say that? What is that difference? What what do you see as the difference between the novel and the theatre and doing that? Well, the, the experience of reading a book is very different, isn't it? You can work at your own pace. You can you can languish in a in a part of the the imaginative world, or you can read swiftly. And and theatre, you really have to distill it into a satisfying two hours block and you want it to feel like a perfectly made cake I think you can surprise in a book much better whereas in theatre you want to have suggested and teased the audience so I think it's a very different form and that was really what I thought is how can I frame this world so that I don't just invent a new character at the end that you feed those characters in earlier I always look at how you can tell stories through an ensemble so I was thinking of who are the storytellers in this and then music. Of course, music is a massive part of the work. And I really didn't want it to feel like a, a museum piece. I didn't want any nostalgia. I'm not nostalgic about that time or or indeed the war. Quite the opposite. I think it's an angry piece of peace theatre as well. So I wanted a very contemporary edge to the music to make sure that we always felt that we were in 2016 watching this show. So I wrote a lot of lyrics, a lot of poems, and then worked with my composer to start looking at musical themes that could go throughout. As this comes together, going back to what you were saying before, does that mean that throughout you're going to be kind of hinting at what the direction is in a way that a book might not? Yeah, I think you want the R moment in theatre when you have the, and again, I'm desperately avoiding saying what happens because right, I'll yeah. give it away. But at the, at the final moment, you go, oh, of course. You want to have planted all those seeds so that the audience get the real sort of pleasure of thinking, I didn't see it coming, but now it has happened. It's it's give, sent me out into the world feeling that there's hope. Is that the same way you worked on Tristan? Well, the story always guides. Tristan was a very different story. I think my start, I, I inherited Tristan and Isolde, which is an interesting thing because almost all my work, I've woken up one morning knowing that it was what I was going to do and wanted to do. All you have to do then is ask yourself why. So you have a very good path to go down creatively. But with Tristan and Isolde, I inherited it. I was early in my directing career. It was a Cornish story and Nehi asked me to do it. And I really struggled with it. I hated the medieval stuff. I'm really not a Game of Thrones girl. I just sort of thought I can't bear a dragon and I can't bear, you know, knights in shining armour. And then I thought, I had one of my sort of, and I thought, and I can't bear this idea of this perfect love story. Because <laughs> it's like the rest of us. I had a pretty messy personal life. And I thought, oh, it's not all about the beautiful people having a marvellous time. So it took me a while to find my way into Tristan and Isolde. But the key thing that I thought was I didn't want it to be about the beautiful people I wanted it to be about the other the people that aren't so lucky so that was when I invented the club of the unloved and in fact they were the people that gave me the the reason to tell this story and that was when I realized at the end it would be the unloved that we thought about at the end of the show so that was how I created that world and that opened the door in that to more modern music from the club absolutely uh, once you've got a club, you can do anything, can't you? You can dance, you can sing, you can play music. But, you know, I've never bothered too much about historical accuracy. I haven't. I always think, tell a story in a way that you feel it. And, you know, life is a big old mashup of memories and 
current ideas and excitements, and I, I always think theatre should represent that. And when you were working on Adolphus Tips, you knew from the beginning you were going to do puppetry, that the cat was a puppet? Yeah, I think I really wanted to make a family show, which I think was to do with having done a few quite dark pieces, getting older. The world weighs heavier on you as you get older, and I think I, I really wanted to make something for young people and families. I never call it a children's show because it's not. It's a show for absolutely everybody. But I wanted to show that families could bring grandmothers and children to and, and have a, a an experience. And puppets are magic. Not only it's the only way, how else do you have a cat on stage? So it's also very practical. But kids love puppets and adults do as well. I always say that I make work through a child's eye, which I do. In my early years, I did a lot of performing for children and it taught me how to tell stories. It taught me when people get bored. The thing is, we're all still, we, we just cover up our child's eye, but we've still got it. And a story like this is very clearly shone through the pleasures and concerns and fears of the child in all of us. We have two theatres here, the Thrust and the Rota, which is a proscenium. At Nehigh and... The Globe, those are both proscenium as well? Nehigh doesn't have a theatre. We're a touring company, so we're very used to being flexible. Okay. What we do have is our own venue called the Asylum, which is a tent. The seating is very flexible, so we can move things around. And the Globe is, well, it's a circular theatre with a thrust stage open to the sky. But we always make work that can adapt and we put that deep into the design and deep into the way that it's created so that we can make it work in different configurations of theatres. What do you see as the difference between the two kinds of theatre and what do you like better? Oh, do you know, I like everything. I can get I can get on with anything, really. I suppose I like the feeling that the audience is close and breaking down the barrier. I always think that you want want it to feel I call it the temporary community is that theatre just happens for the people that turned up that night and it, it vanishes at the end of it there's nothing that exists and I love that and often it's easier to create that in a thrust or in a slightly more unusual audience layout but a proscenium is very beautiful visually and can you can often distill the work so that you can it can be stiller and you can really focus the direction so I can enjoy many many different spaces. What about film? How do you relate film to that? I mean, you've never directed a film. Would you want to? No, I've got a strange... I, my my mind is full of all sorts of things. Every day I have a million ideas and I'm sort of full of things to do. And then somebody says, would you like to do a film? And they, my mind empties. <laughs> I have no ideas and no thoughts. So no, I'm not I'm not tempted. And I'm, I'm fine with that. You know, I, I think I really have found what I want to do, which is create theatre. Adolphus Tips is about war. And it's a children's story weaving in the story of war. You said before that the theme is about peace. So how do you bring in the themes? Do you even think about the themes when you're working on it? Are you trying to focus in on themes? I always think in themes. The detail comes later. I always think you need to know what your story you're telling and why. And of course, war is very complicated. The reason the British are so obsessed with the Second World War is we all knew somebody my grandfather fought we all did so it was it's very close to our experience but it was also a just war it needed fighting and those people gave their lives for good history tells us that and i think that's very difficult because if you're a pacifist or you uh, you don't believe in in this it's you you have to look at that war and think it had to be stopped 
So I think it's not simple to say it's about peace. I think it's about hope, really, is what I would say, and about the the possibility of connection rather than conflict and and acknowledging the, the complexities of the world, but saying there will be a way through there. If you hold on to humanity and reach out to human beings across cultures and time zones, that there will be a way forward. So I think it's a play that's hopeful above all else. You said in that Guardian interview that Tristan was a seminal work for you. Why? I think I find it very hard to get into it. And I think that that discovery of the Club of the Unloved really helped me as a theatre director understand how to frame a story with something very personal and something unique. It was also an early show in my career that I made with the Nehigh Ensemble. And magic happened. It really did. We did it. We rehearsed it in four weeks and I wasted one of them on a bad idea. So really it was created in three weeks. And I look back now and I think... How did that happen? But it really was the coming together of my coming of age as a director and the company trusting me as a director. The most incredible story at the centre and this great sense of freedom at at Nehigh. So I I have it as a great reference point because as life gets more complicated and more successful and more stressful, um, it's good to remember the conditions of creativity, not always thinking about how to create success, but how to create the conditions for surprise. Was there anything from that experience specifically that helped you on tips? Certainly. I'm always thinking about who are my storytellers, what's, what lens. I always say, what lens are we looking at it through? And also making sure that it's personal. If, I, if I'm if i too far away from work, I'm, I'm lost really. So I'm, I always ask why, what do I feel? What do I want to feel? Why do I want to see this scene? So I keep the work very emotionally rooted rather than intellectual. I I think the intellectual looks after itself. We're kind of trained to use our brains. It's much more uneasy for people to be simple and open and, and talk about their emotions as well. So I try and keep that very alive in the room. Emma Rice, I'm going to switch subjects here. One of the chief elements of 2016 is that the world has shifted. The show itself is older than 2016. It came before Brexit and before, God help us, what happened on November 8th. In terms of theater, how do you think theater adapts to these kinds of changes? Do you adapt? Is this something going on in your mind, or is theater more universal than the horrors of 2016? Do you know, I was thinking about this this morning. I'm smiling at you asking me. Theatre is a very slow art form. If if I was a fine artist, I could paint a picture the day after Brexit. I could translate it. Or if I was a musician, I could write a song. Theatre takes years, so we tend to be behind, always. However, 946, we made it before Brexit, and then when we took it on tour, it was just after. And it is about inclusivity, diversity, acceptance, progressive um, thinking. And it felt very, very strangely political and needed in in the UK when we've toured it and lo and behold we've landed in America after what's happened here and it feels you can feel the room sat forward and it this show for young people it feels so much more than that it's almost a sort of message of 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 defiance and there's a, a politicization in that which I certainly feel in terms of your question I'm determined and more determined by what's happened in the UK and what's happening in the world to make a difference to make relevant theatre political theatre and 
use my power for good. Well, there's another element which makes theater more important. Uh, I was editing an interview not long ago with a writer named Arthur Lawrence. He wrote Gypsy. He wrote West Side Story. He was blacklisted in America and Hollywood in the 50s and wound up in Europe for a while. I asked him at the time, I said, well, Hollywood caved in, but Broadway did not. And his response was, well, Broadway wasn't corporate. Now, today, of course, it is. But knee-high, Berkeley rep, these are not corporate, which means that on some level beyond television, beyond film, beyond the commercial theater, you, Emma Rice, become far more important in the next four years. That's scary. It is. You're just giving me goosebumps. Yes, we are free to our bones at knee-high. And Berkeley Rep is, I think it's why there's such a strong connection here. And I value it very highly as an artist, very highly, highly as an individual. And I think, yes, I think that puts you in a powerful position. I feel that it's very important as a, as a recognised artist at the moment to be fierce and free. That reflects in the way the audience will view your shows because they're not going to view the show in the same way it was viewed a year ago. No. And isn't that wonderful about theatre, that it can change under your eyes? And it's certainly... We've been working on it now over the last few days in preparation for the opening. How wonderful is that, to be able to knead into a piece of work? It's like a sponge, this 946. It sponges in the politics of the time. And, and we're ready. We want to do that. So we're using it to absorb all the emotions we're feeling. And it does become a, a very profound experience for the audience. Has Brexit affected you personally or in terms of your work in England thus far? And do you see, I'm sure you folks have discussed how it might affect you? On a practical level, we don't know what Brexit is going to mean. We took this vote without any knowledge of how we would go about it and what it would mean. But personally, I'm, I'm devastated. And I work with many, many people from different backgrounds and different cultures. There were tears. London grieved and is still in grief we don't know what it means and but the effect on me is I mean I woke up strangely more animated than I have for years thinking uh, certainly at the Globe I had the amazing gift of having a London venue which you can go and see a show for five pounds or seven of your US dollars and thinking this has to be the most democratic open-armed organisation and really making sure that all of the your choices of the work you make and who you make it for and who you make it with become vitally important and very, very political. So I'm strangely invigorated by it, deeply unhappy, very distressed. But, oh, my goodness, I'm going to make what I do work matter and make a statement. And how about bringing younger people into the theatre? That's a problem here. Uh, I was at a theatre last night. I won't say what it was. Not Berkeley Rap. And I looked around and everybody was over 65. <laughs> I know, it's a terrible problem. It comes down to a little bit of culture and habit, but largely it comes down to finances. And it's the price of tickets. And if tickets are $50, then to bring two kids and two parents, you're looking at a lot of money. And we have that problem in England, but of course we do have subsidy in England. And Nehi, we're able to... Um, have our own ticket pricing policy. So we work very hard at making sure that 
there's access to work for, for young people. And we, you have to look after the future as well. Who's going to be coming when the 65-year-olds aren't coming anymore? <laughs> well, the scary part about that is that if they don't get into the theatrical habit and theater is the only place that isn't corporate, where do you hear, where do you see yes. material that isn't pre-approved? Absolutely. And that's where, as people that run theatres and theatre companies and theatre makers, we have to be strategic as well. It's not just about the moment and the whatever product, even though I hate that word you're making, performance. It's about how how are you building the next audience, making sure they know they're invited, they know they're welcome and making that a very active hosting experience. And we've so we love that at Knee High. We we do see when we have our tent up the asylum we put our best people on the car park so that the minute people arrive, they're, they're being treated in a knee-high way. There's great food, there's great music, there's great people. And, and you see it as a whole night out. And make sure, always make sure that we're reaching out to areas of the community that wouldn't normally come. One final question about this show. Uh, the title of the book was The Amazing Story. You added the words 946. And I know what they mean, and they're part of the story, but why why did you do that? Because I felt that that was that this fact at the center of the of the story was the absolute heart of it. I thought it would make the audience ask a question, which was good. Um, and I also wanted it to not feel like a children's show because it, it isn't a children's show. It's for everybody. And the amazing story of Adolphus Tip sounded a little bit soft and a little bit fantastical. It's like the fantastic Mr. Fox, you know. You're in, and this isn't Roald Dahl. This is about war. It's about love. It's about loss. And I wanted to have something a bit more, have some substance in there to make people ask a question. I'm Richard Walensky, and see you next Sunday for another edition of the Bay Area Theatre Podcast. Mm-hmm.